in your I'm Gary O'Reilly. And I'm Chuck Nice. And this is Playing Playing With with Science. This week, we bring you a special episode. That's right. We sent out a survey and asked you to vote for your favorite episodes of 2017. And we've compiled moments from the winning picks into this special time capsule episode smash-up. Let's start off with our favorite episode of 2017, Fight like a physicist. In this one, our good friend, physics professor Eric Goff of Lynchburg College, breaks down the science behind Krav Maga and teaches us how to throw a mean punch according to physics. Check it out. We are talking martial arts and the physics therein. And joining us now is our very good friend, Professor Eric Goff. Not just a man with a plan, but a man with a book coming out next year. That'll be 2018. The Science Behind Krav Maga, which, if I'm not mistaken, Professor, is the hand-to-hand martial arts of the Israeli military, is it not? That's right. Uh, The Israeli Defense Forces employ this, and it's becoming a much more popular sport here in the U.S. You're seeing a lot of billboards going up for Krav Maga instruction these days. Well, what is it? I mean, it sounds like... I got to tell you, when you talk about the martial arts, you got some cool names out there, okay? You got your judo, all right? Your Aikido. Your your Aikido, okay? That sounds cool. Your jujitsu, which sounds very dangerous. Even karate, which is like, oh, I know what I'm getting into. But then you say Krav Maga, and it sounds like... You're going to think, you're thinking it's food again, aren't you? Yeah, I'm like, Krav Maga, mmm, delicious. Ah, you know what? I had the best Krav Maga the other night. I've got to tell you, it was unbelievable. I'm telling you, the outside was crispy. The inside was tender. It was the best Krav Maga I've ever had. My stomach's already rumbling. (laughs) Behave yourself. All right, so what is Krav Maga? Firstly, Professor, welcome back to Playing With Science. Um, (laughs) And please put this man in his place. Thank you. Well, well, if if Chuck had had good Krav Maga the other night, his face would look a lot different. <laughs> All right. All right, Professor. Way School's to go. in. Way to go. <laughs> Nicely done, my friend. So is it is it kicks, flicks, all the sort of flashy stuff, or is this more hand to hand, let's sort of like end up wrestling, or is it a combination of a lot of different martial arts? Is it eye gouging and, and like rip your throat out stuff? Uh, it, it's got some of that in there. Um, I'm, I, I've studied karate myself. I'm a first-degree black belt, and I, I really enjoy karate, It's but it, it has a lot of elegant katas and movements. But Krav Maga is a much more uh, realistic fighting system, so uh, I, I think I'd, I'd be more comfortable knowing a little bit more Krav Maga than karate if I were on a, a dark sidewalk somewhere and had to, had to fight somebody. Yes. I'm, gu- I'm guessing that the good professor never has an issue with pupils yeah (laughs) he's in a lecture (laughs) i gotta tell you i'm sure there's a great deal of discipline in the professor's class so so krav maga is uh basically a a street fighting style then huh or or, Uh, it 
Or more- it is. I mean, you, you've got some Aikido in there. You've got some boxing, wrestling, uh, some karate. I mean, you've got an amalgam of, of all kinds of different systems. And it, it's an ever-evolving system. It, it employs whatever works well, and it changes techniques as uh, new ways to perform them come along. So you've worked on an article for The Ring magazine on boxing? Yeah, we, we've looked at different uh, punch techniques. We've looked at punch speeds. Um, if you do just kind of a standard jab-cross combination, mm-hmm. uh, we also do this in Krav Maga, uh, you can get speeds close to 20 miles an hour with these jabs and crosses. Wow. Um, and one thing to keep in mind when you're punching someone, if you extend your arm out straight, when your arm reaches its full straight uh, extension, your fist is moving at zero miles an hour. Uh, if it wasn't, it would keep moving and your arm would stretch. So the maximum speed of your punch is going to be about halfway into that extended arm. Gotcha. So, you, so is it better to be closer and hit somebody halfway through a punch than to hit them at the end of a punch? Absolutely. Your, your elbow is going to be bent about 90 degrees or so when your, your fist is moving at its maximum speed. And then as the fist extends, your fist has to, or the arm extends, the fist has to slow down to zero when you get to a fully extended arm. So you have this rising speed and then, you know, going back down when the arm is extended. So... The most damage on the punch is going to be when the the elbows bend. Oh, wow. So when I look at the biomechanics of my shoulder, my elbow, my fist, if we're going to call it that, my shoulder's not built for kind of rotating around the outside. It's more upwards in a vertical, upwards and downwards, and my, my elbow is a hinge. So how do we utilize the way we're constructed to the most effect if we are to throw punches? Well, the most effective way is to not just use your arm and shoulder. You really want to engage your core, uh, this kinetic linking that we talk about where you're starting from the feet, you're going to start rotating your body Mm -hmm. into the punch, so your entire torso is creating a rotation. So you've got a lot of stored energy that you're going to convert to kinetic energy as through that rotation. So you really want to be rotating your trunk so so that you are using, it's almost like a golf swing, huh? Yes. Yeah. I mean, the, the same with the, the throwing idea. action, a golf swing. Right. We're getting the same with the rotation for a kick in in martial arts. The sa- the same thing applies. Right. You're 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 maximizing the energy. Is that right, Professor? By incorporating rotation. That that's right. And when you have a like, for example, a side kick. You know, we also use side kicks, front mm-hmm. kicks, back kicks, and in, in Krav Maga as well as karate. The idea is you're going to cock your leg for a kick so you're going to store a bunch of energy like a spring in your leg when you've got your leg cocked and then you release that energy as you're kicking and you're going to rotate your hips at the same time so you're trying to get as much uh, energy released during the the kick or the punch as you can when i've spoken to boxers and to people who practice martial arts they said some guys punch harder than others and it's not the big muscly guys that you you'd think would have the hardest punches quite often it's the little guys with not a lot of bulk but they punch so hard is that down to rotation or is it something else that they're employing yeah, a lot of it's rotation i mean keep in mind uh, your your kinetic energy grows like the square of your speed and only the the first power of your mass so if you can get a lot of extra speed going in that punch somebody's going to feel that a little bit more than kind of a lumbering, bigger mass uh, fist coming at you. 
Wow. So really, it's more about the speed and the rotation than it is about, oh, I'm a big, strong guy. Sure. I mean, you really want to get hit with that speed. I mean, when, when these punches are coming at you at 15 to 20 miles an hour when you're getting hit, uh, you're going to feel it. <laughs> It is really interesting when you look at it from the point of view of physics and martial arts. It's, uh, yeah. I have a friend, he's got a, an older guy, who's, there's nothing of him. And he just turns around to me and says, this guy can punch so hard, it's ridiculous. Wow. And you're looking at him thinking, he couldn't punch his way out of a wet paper bag. Yeah, when the, what, when the martial what, what arts expert says, this guy can punch, you're thinking, okay. Right. Up next, we brought on your personal astrophysicist, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, to discuss some of his many tweets about sports for an episode we called Out of This World Sports. Today, we enter Twitterdom through the vast multiverses of Neil deGrasse Tyson's mind and light up the cerebral spheres that engage with the complex and ever-evolving world of sport. Yeah, so uh, did you did you change your meds? Slightly. <laughs> hey, Neil deGrasse Tyson has many opinions and many things which he chooses to share on a regular basis, but he has a heartfelt connection to sports that's constantly filtered through his scientific lens on Twitter. So when you play with science, there can be no better play date than the man himself. Yes. And to take us to sports that are out of this world. Out of this we world sports. Have. Yes, indeed. Out of this world sports, we have Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yes, thanks for joining us right now. It's the one, the, the only, the Neil inevitable deGrasse Neil deGrasse Tyson. Tyson. <laughs> you like that? Scared? That's Where'd you get the gong? Yeah. My gosh. <laughs> Normally that's how you get someone off the stage, right? <laughs> I saw the gong show. All righty. No, no, don't, don't take it personally. Uh, no, that is, uh, that is a royal entrance right there. That's what the gong is for. Now... Normally, I'm sitting there. That's right, sir. Now, you just took you just took your own damn show. <laughs> and now, I'm a guest on your damn show. Weirding you out? Are you comfortable? Are you okay? I'll get, I'll get used to it. That's all right. It doesn't happen without you, no matter what, happen? though. What's up? Neil's going to start asking us questions. He won't be able to help himself. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I'll, be, I'll happily be your guest on this show. Yeah, that's Thank when... The, the, uh, please don't ask us any questions. It, it means I feel loved. Uh, I feel loved. Uh, yeah. That's very cool. Thanks for being here, man. We All appreciate right. it. Yeah. And, of course, you are a prolific tweeter. Yes. Yeah, but it's not... Uh, well, so a couple of things. First, you said I have many opinions, which I do, but I hardly ever tweet opinions. This is true. Okay, uh, the uh, most opinionated tweet I ever posted which was clearly an opinion was after star wars the force awakens i said bb8 is way cuter than r2d2 right. that was clearly an opinion, That's an opinion. And, and of course there were fights and things oh, you kidding me yeah <laughs> that was generational fights yeah without a um, doubt and but uh, what i try to is not give you an opinion because frankly i don't care if you share my opinion on anything okay what i care is that whatever opinion you come up with mm -hmm. it is informed with objectively verifiable truths. Nice. See, there you go. This man is always about science education. Right, right down to is. the tweets. Then make whatever old damn opinion you want. Right. I don't care, but 
I mean, I care broadly, but specifically person to person. Right. Just I, I'll give you more information that you may have had before right. to help you understand your decisions. That's and, all. So what we're talking about today are the tweets of Niels with respect to sports. Yes. Which is you called uh, all my my sports tweets. Yes, we did, my friend. We did not. There's not a. I mean, there's a few, but it's not like that's what I do, right? No, there, no but there's there's a there's there's more than forty of them. Forty. Okay, we were able to five thousand. Okay, so there's right. there's one in a hundred is a sports tweet. One in a hundred okay. is, is a sports tweet. Right. You know? And a lot of times they surround very significant sporting events. Yes, yes, just to keep it in the mood. Right. Yeah. So yeah. it's like the Super Bowl or the Olympics. Your gray matter. Yes, it does. Even if it's one in a hundred. And you are an athlete, you know. I mean, yeah. forty pounds ago, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've. We, I think we've established we're all. Everyone here is an ex-athlete. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, I'm. I'm sure that you know you're a person who looks at. So, so when, as a, as a former athlete, you were a wrestler. But just can I tell you, since we're like three guys here, uh, all right? So you know where my how I wear my forty pounds. So a lot of it is everywhere, but of course we're guys, so most of it just goes to the belt. Got, right. But I've always had broad shoulders and a large chest, and my chest even at my chubbiest, was always bigger than my waist. So all you have to do is cut a jacket, to, a sport coat, to come in at the waist a little bit. Right. And then it still cuts, and you don't look like some slob that, you know, that, that clearly was once in shape but is no longer. There you go. So, so, I've, so I've been able to fake this extra weight in my... In my... Next week on Playing With Science, we'll have colors for spring and... <laughs> as well as tailoring and other ideas. <laughs> haberdasherial advice from Playing With Science. This is from the 2012 Olympics. All right. I said, how about a Mars Olympics? Yes, all athletes would suffocate. <laughs> Ignoring that complication, way cooler than an Earth Olympics. That's all. Uh, way cooler than an Earth Olympics. I'm Mars setting Olympics. you up for tweets that follow. Yes, obviously. I was going to say, because yeah, yeah, yeah. when you say way cooler, then you actually give us some examples of why mm -hmm. an Olympics on Mars, or pretty much any sporting event on Mars might be cool. It might it's be also a couple hundred degrees below zero on Mars, so way cooler has double meaning there. Ah, yeah, no, okay. I, knew, I think we picked that you one picked up. picked that up, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's look at one of the Mars uh, tweets, and this is cycling on Mars. Okay, okay. All, right. All, right. All right. So go ahead. All right. So uh, this is again during the, the summer 2012 Olympics. If there was cycling on Mars, try Olympic Mons a volcanic mountain five times taller than Mont Blanc in the Alps. Wow. So you think you got tall mountains here. No, the tallest mountains and the deepest valleys are not on Earth, in the solar system. They're, they're on Mars, they're on the moon, so we ain't got nothing. We, it's not the right. Yeah, we're not, okay, well, we're not winning those contests. Because you know this, the atmosphere on Mars is how much less than the Earth's atmosphere? It's about one one-hundredth. Yeah. So if we had the pressure, that, atmospheric pressure. pressure. So in other words, for every breath you take on Mars, there's one one hundredth the amount of air in that breath. Because it would be on as an Earth. athlete, altitude becomes your enemy in terms of the oxygenation. If you're, you're performing in altitude, but yeah. the ideal way to do this is you train in altitude yes. and mm. then compete at sea level. Right. What we need to do is that's, go to that's Mars. That's why Sherpas yeah. don't have any problem getting up the mountain while all the tourists are like, <gasps> <gasps> that's right. All the baggage. I need, right. Yeah. I need more oxygen. So here's what you do. Even you better. Train on Mars. I'm going to make a suggestion that's never been made before. You ready? Yeah, here we are. You drain the Pacific Ocean. Okay. Oh. And then hold the Olympics at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. And, but you train at high altitude, but now you compete 
at the bottom of the, which is trench. six miles down, now every breath of air has way more oxygen right. than at sea level. And so now uh, you have heroic feats. Before, you don't even have to dope your blood. Mm. The air itself will put the oxygen right, and becomes, force it right into your lungs. Sure the I just see you're going to stump up for that draining of the- <laughs> I was going to say, I just like the fact that you're thinking like a supervillain. <laughs> I'd have gone the, the other Pacific way and said, Ocean. let's all go train on Mars, mm-hmm. on, the, on the mountain. On the Olympic Mons. And come back to Earth and compete. Problem is, it's only 40% the gravity of Earth. So the weight that you are carrying is not as much going up the hill. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, there, so, so there is some trade-offs there. Some trade-offs there. There's some trade-offs there. Some leaded suits. Right. And, oh, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. Led, led, led yourself down. Yeah. Uh, another thing, once you've drained the Pacific Ocean, mm-hmm. that has nothing to do with sports, just while we're on the topic if you drain the pacific ocean that is the great toilet bowl of dead satellites oh really yes oh yeah because they always splash down in the pacific oh no, they crash down in the yeah, yeah. <laughs> if it's true. a dead satellite they're not splashing they're not splashing down they're crashing down yeah, yeah. so the reason why is the pacific ocean is almost a third of all possible longitudes on earth right mm. so if you deorbit and you do it you have a lot of latitude, no pun intended, to where you begin the deorbit so that it's going to plunk down in the Pacific yeah, no matter right. what. And and people don't live there, so not over the great bulk of the expanse. Right. So it's a safe place to drop your stuff out of orbit. The day we deorbit Hubble, it's going straight into it's the Pacific. Going into the, sp- yeah, the Pacific, Pacific Ocean. Hubble. And it's the size of a Greyhound bus, by the way, if you wow. don't know. Nice. Hubble telescope. All right. Yeah. Hey, time to take a short break. We'll be right back with our 2017 Time Capsule episode. Don't go away. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the US on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx ground is faster to more locations than UPS ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any of you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true.
Welcome back to Playing With Science. On this Time Capsule episode, we're revisiting some of your favorite shows from this past season. Up next, you voted for The Physics of the Tour de France. This show features Neil deGrasse Tyson's interview with the one and only Lance Armstrong. Check it out. Today on Playing With Science, we ride. So fill up your water bottle, get your lycra on. It is centuries old and said to be the most efficient means of transport known to humankind. Pretty simple, really. A wheel at each end, somewhere to sit, and something to steer with. Yes, uh, very simple, but not so simple, because, you know, cycling is now one of the most sophisticated sports on the planet, and it's loaded, and I mean loaded, with lots of tech. But don't worry, you're not going to miss out on that. We have a whole nother show that's going to be devoted to the tech of cycling. Oh, yeah, but for now, we'll be exploring the physics of the Tour de France, which is a a test of man's endurance, man's need for speed while not falling off, and with more twists and turns and devious strategies than an Agatha Christie novel. I see what you did there. Yeah, I like that. That was good, yeah. To explore this lesser-known world, we sent the intrepid Neil deGrasse Tyson to meet with what some might say is a controversial figure in the sport. We know him simply as Lance Armstrong. From when you began riding to when you retired, did the aerodynamics of the sport change? Well, yes. I mean, the, the aerodynamics, absolutely. It's still your body. It's still your body. But the, the, the biggest thing that changed was in the late 80s, they invented a whole new type of handlebar, which changed, you know, in the, in the, in the late 80s or in the mid-80s, you would have been sitting out like this. They took, which originated in the triathlon, they took... Um, the idea of that, and they said, well, what if we, and the guy who invented this is a guy named Boone Lennon, and he was an old ski racer, but he also rode bikes, and he worked for Scott, the, the ski manufacturer to make poles and skis, and, and he said, well, what if instead of, I, mean, I wouldn't ski down the hill like this, what if, you know, a, a skier who's tucked like this, like, what if we rode like that? So that, that, so that, that just that took everything. takes away the aerodynamic it, drag all this of my comes, arms outside. Yeah, everything inside. Everything and now inside I'm one your body. Thing. Yeah. So you look. It, it was called the Scott Bar, and it looked like a downhill ski racer. Out posing like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah, were yeah. out a bit. Yeah, but, which yeah. I've seen it. In, yeah. So that revolutionized the aerodynamics of triathlon initially, and then it moved into cycling, which was a harder transition because they were so traditional. They saw these bars and these guys. They said, "No way." Ain't no way I'm riding that. Well, it proved so much faster that actually Greg LeMond was the first one. He won the Tour de France in 1989 on these new aero That's bars. That's what it takes. That, I mean, that was the tipping point for that bar. So then when did the, the conehead helmets come Those out? Those were around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those were around before the bars. Okay. And then came, and then, you know, people try to uh, make an aerodynamic frame. I mean, I remember in the... And yeah, the tubes became these, you know. They're very, they're, they're oval shaped. Yeah, yeah. You can even Almost go like back. like an airfoil of a plane. A, a British guy, when, when the UCI, when the governing body was a little more lax on the double triangle thing, a British guy in 1996 by the name of Chris Boardman set the hour record, which is on the track. I love which, the hour record. Which is like the ultimate I test. love that. I mean, you're indoors, there's no wind, there's no draft. It's like the ultimate. So he and the track said, is banked, so you it's, just... It's banked at 30 nothing degrees. nothing against you. Right. So he said, he broke the hour record on a, a bike, it's called the Lotus bike. It was not a double triangle. You can look it up. I mean, we can go to the lap. It, it was a very... This is, to me, if, you, if the sport said, okay, you guys evolved, 
technology-wise, do whatever you want. That's what the sport would look like. You'd have that, that, that's what a bike frame would look like. But the lotus frame. The lotus frame, which you, 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 your audience will see. We'll get, it, it, we'll get a yeah. picture of it. So, but then they backed off that and went back to the double triangle. But you'll see how, how radical it looks. So, and obviously he went, I mean, nobody's ever done What's your one. best hour? I've never done that. I've, you never did that? Don't no. tell me that. You're lying. I've had a lot of great hours in my life, but they weren't, they weren't, <laughs> they weren't on a bell draw. <laughs> Oh, look at that. Land. Doesn't like the track inside, does he? Loves the road. Yeah, absolutely. But it's interesting, Eric, that they borrowed from other sports. You, you listen to that first bit, the, the Scott Bar comes out of skiing. Lotus is a British car manufacturer. They had a Formula One race team. So cycling's been borrowing from all these different sports in an attempt to get that speed. Get faster. And why not? We all follow the same laws of physics. Right. So... Uh, skiers facing the same kind of air that a cyclist is going to face. Yes. So it, we can learn a lot from other sports by seeing what technologies have advanced in other sports and apply them to cycling. So well, now, what, so, oh, no, I was going to say, what is the um, what is the optimum way to increase airflow for a for a biker aside from you know the tuck, which makes perfect sense. You ever see a downhill skier? They're they're actually not only are they tucked, but they're as low to the ground as possible. So, what what is the optimum means of increasing airflow for a bike cyclist? Well, we learn about air resistance when we're children and we stick our hands out the car window. Uh, we get into airplane mode and the hand is, you know, sideways mm-hmm. and we have a l- very little drag and then we turn it 90 degrees and all of a sudden we're getting smacked by the air and the hand will fall back. So we which, know which, that- Which, by the way, Eric, is why I only have one hand, but <laughs> thanks for- <laughs> Thanks for bringing up my pain, sir. Thank you. No, go well, ahead. I'm joking. If you, if you drive on the other side of the road in England, then you can lose the other hand. <laughs> so, All right, Eric, don't you. encourage him. Please, just don't encourage him. Now, am I right when, and, and Chuck loves this term, skin friction? Is that the technical of the cyclist term for the, the, the problem that you face as, so, as a competitor? What you're trying to do is reduce the the area. So when you get into that tucked position, you are reducing the amount of area that the air can hit. Gotcha. So if you're if you're going really slow, the air resistance might just be a couple of pounds on you. Yeah. Um, if you're going really fast downhill, it could be 15, 16 pounds. And remember, 15 pounds is the weight of the bike. So you you've got the weight of a bowling ball being pulled back behind you uh-huh. uh, in the air resistance. So you you can really feel it. <laughs> it's really uh, slowing you down. So, so as Neil it, said, if we get the conehead helmets, then I get the super slippery lycra bodysuit. I get really smart booties for <laughs> for my for my shoes. Nice. That reduce all of the wind resistance. How much can I gain and well, lose? In the time trials, they're allowed to wear this very uh, sleek clothing and, and aerodynamic equipment. They've got the back wheel is covered, and you can reduce drag by about twenty percent. You got the teardrop helmet, right? Uh, you know, you get a cyclist like I think of Tony Martin from Germany on the bike who just absolutely almost gets himself completely two dimensional on that thing. The way he can compress his knees and his and his uh, body, uh, it's an amazing thing to see. Um, but they can reduce, you know, by you know twenty percent or so the the drag area that they feel. Okay, uh, one question, Eric. Why only the rear wheel is covered, and the front wheel has the spokes or whichever system is preferred? 
So when the air is coming around the object, think of the water going around a boat. You have a wake in the back, mm -hmm. and that wake is taking away some energy that you have. So when you close off that back wheel and you have the teardrop shape, you're allowing the air to flow a little farther back and the wake's not quite as chaotic. You don't have quite as many swirls. So you the, don't lose so quite what, as much energy. Just to clarify, what you're saying is uh, behind the bike, what happens is the, the air turbulence creates like a curl. And so that yeah. curl, that curl of turbulence happens much farther behind the bike itself, freeing the bike to move faster, right? Yeah, if, if you just have a round object mm -hmm. and you got air flowing behind it, you can get all these swirls behind it right. in the air. And that's taking energy away from the, from the ball, let's say. But if you can teardrop the, the object, the air will flow much smoother behind it and you don't have quite as many swirls, so there's less drag on the object. Wow. And now what, what are the speeds? Have we got to a place where we're, we're kind of reaching an optimum speed? What are the kind of speeds that we're talking about when we look at these aerodynamic advancements? Well, you go back um, a couple of years, in the first stage, uh, you had Rohan Dennis setting a time trial record. Now, this was only about eight and a half miles, but the only. guy averaged... Yeah, only. Yeah, only. I say only, <laughs> yes. Uh, the, the guy averaged about 35 miles an hour on the bike. Wow. I mean, that was an incredible speed. We're talking over 55 kilometers an hour. Um, sustain that for... Ticket. For, yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, insa that's insane. Wow. It, yes. <laughs> Super cool. In this next episode, NASA oceanographer Bill Patzert breaks down the science of surfing the big waves. Check it out. Today we head for the beach and we are so amped. We may shoot the curl. We might have to bail. We will probably get mullered. And if you understand any of that, you then are no Barney. Dude, total <laughs> poser, dude. <laughs> and helping us stay away from the gnarly stuff and steer us to the serious science of the big waves is Bill Petzert oceanographer at NASA and, of course, super cool surfer from California. Then we go all pro with professional surfer and big wave champion Paige Alms, who is based in Maui. Yeah. I don't like her already. Isn't that cool? Right. There are few sites in sport that are as awesome as seeing a surfer take on the big waves, yeah. make that huge descent, and then emerge through the barrel. It is breathtaking and possibly the most fun you can have with physics. And when I say awesome, I don't mean it in that cliched way. I actually really mean it is awesome. Yeah, it yeah. is. It's a beautiful thing to behold, to watch somebody yeah. drop in and ride a wave and shoot the curl and come out at the end of that barrel and stand up. It really looks like a human being triumphing over the entire ocean. Take that, Mother Nature. Albeit temporarily, because we don't like to upset her. That's for sure. She does have a temper. Mm -hmm. All right, let's get up to our first guest, shall we? Bill Patzert. Absolutely. Yes, research scientist and oceanographer at NASA. And a former surfer. Oh, I don't know. Should I say former? No. Bill, welcome to the show. And do you still surf, my friend? Okay. Aloha, dudes. Uh, Aloha. Well, you know, I, I could have been... I should have been a contender, but I spent too much time in the classroom, got my PhD, but uh, I've been surfing now for over 50 years. Way. Modest surfing. Take a bow, sir. Wow. That's fabulous. That is amazing. So that's a lifelong surfing career, really. You seem to have a unique approach on 
the sport of surfing, being an oceanographer. Has it been an advantage to have this, I'll call it inside knowledge, of the oceans as regards to getting the best out of your surfing? Well, you know, the, the answer to that, of course, is yes and no. You know, it, it's one thing to know the physics, but it's another thing to be a great surfer. Hmm. All world-class athletes, either you have it or you don't. And uh, I definitely did not have it, all right? <laughs> all right. Mod modesty is, we appreciate some modesty. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this, uh, switching gears just uh, a little bit. Back to you being a surfer. What makes a good wave? Well, you know, these great storms, they generate waves of many wavelengths from, you know, a few inches or a few centimeters up to waves that have three to 400 feet of wavelength. Mm. Now, the interesting thing about waves is that depending on the wavelength, the length between the peaks and a big swell, the longer wavelengths travel faster. And so the first waves to arrive from a giant storm are usually these very smooth, long period waves. Right. The precursors. And of course, these are the waves that surfers love. You get essentially anywhere between 15 and 25 seconds between the peaks. And if the storm is large enough, these great swells can generate waves anywhere between 10, 25, 30, even 40-foot waves. And, of course, the uh, the real surfers, the guys that and the gals that live the sport, these are the waves they love. They're smooth, mm -hmm. have one large wavelength. But that is interesting that waves, the longer waves, travel faster. And so usually they're the first to arrive followed the next day usually by what we call storm surf, which is mixed surf of uh -huh. all different wavelengths. Yeah, okay. Many surfers call slop. Slop? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so the, what you want are these long period waves that are the first arriving waves. Gotcha. So it's a, it's a small window of opportunity if it's only going to last a day or so. Yes, the, the, you know, the, the best waves are usually less than one day and you're gonna you could travel half of the way around the world or further just for one oh, yeah, day I, I, on the uh, board i've forecasted waves these waves of course i call them great travelers mm. they travel across what we call great circles which is the shortest distance yes from one place to another but i've seen great storms in the indian ocean and more than a week later they arrive on the coast of california and so these are truly world travelers. Wow. Hey, we've got to take another break, but we'll be back shortly with our time capsule episode of Playing With Science. Stay tuned. With more Playing With Science, you're listening to a special Time Capsule episode. And keeping with the Star Talk tradition, we sent out a survey to our fans asking you to select your favorite episodes. And the results are in. 
Let's now take a listen to Space Jam. In this episode, your personal astrophysicist, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, answers your questions about basketball. Today, we throw ourselves deep into the cosmos and plot a course for the superstars of a faraway galaxy known by those who search such stars as the NBA Nebula. Oh, man, I like what you did there, Gary. Yeah, that was a, like, uh, that was a really cosmological NBA reference thing. Well... Guess what? We're armed only with our enduring minds and our listeners' fabulously creative questions because we're going to trek towards those faraway stars. And our guide for this journey is none other than the one, the only, your very own personal astrophysicist, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. It's like my that that you were getting low. <laughs> getting low. Now we've got the irony of the next line is not wasted. So let's not waste any time. Let's make some Space Jam, shall we? <laughs> I don't know why, but just hearing you say, let's make some Space Jam. Just... It's like the Great British Bake Off, <laughs> only in space. But I think, Neil, the way I've introduced the show might be flawed. Slightly. No, no, NBA Nebula, I love it. Do you? We have nebul nebulosities across the cosmos, named for whatever they happen to look like. Ooh. We have a crab nebula, the North American nebula, the, the we we have the eagle nebula. It just looked like whatever it looks like. Whatever it looks like, we call we that we call it as we see it. So let me ask you this, and I know this is a sports show. As does any good umpire, right? Yes. Nice. nice. Oh, I saw what you did. What I, did there. I saw what you did. There. Ah, <laughs> my man, my man. Um, let me just ask you. So, real, so no reason why they couldn't be an NBA nebula. It would have to look like a, a um, like a LeBron court. James. Uh, a court or some, you know, the paint patterns on the court. Or a basket. Or, or a basket hoop. With a net. I don't know of any. Maybe I could reinterpret some uh, that already exist and come That'd back cool. with sort of a sports version mm. of previously named nebulae. So, Sportify the universe. Let me ask you this about nebulae because they're big giant clouds of yeah. space gas, right? Yeah, nebula is like Latin for cloud. That's basically. what it is, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Big giant cloud of space gas. But since it's a cloud. Yeah. Wouldn't they change shape over a period of time? Oh, yeah. Ah. You just don't live long enough to watch <laughs> that happen. Okay. So yeah. the Eagle Nebula will remain the Eagle Nebula as long as I'm alive. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's huge. You're right. talking about something that's hundreds of times bigger than the solar system. Right. It's not going to just sort of move around, around yeah, and be, be anything it wants in any given moment. Okay. So, so you do see some changes deep down where stars are being born, mm -hmm. this sort of thing. But overall... These structures have a certain permanency to them. Sweet. All right. And now, remember, this is a sports show. Okay? So we're going to get science back to our sports. sports. It is a science sports show. Yeah. Okay? And that was science. That was science. All right? So how are we going to get to the sports? Because what we're doing today is we're taking I have no idea question. what you're doing today. Oh, that's right. Okay. You're a guest. Yeah, I'm a guest. Normally, you're driving this bus. Buddy. I ain't driving this bus. <laughs> you got the, a ticket. The short bus. <laughs> Apparently. Come that's on. when I'm driving it. <laughs> we'll and check like, Neil's ticket. Yeah, for they're sure. like, wait a minute. Who, who let that kid... <laughs> Drive the bus. Drive the bus. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. So today what we're doing is we're answering your listener questions submitted about uh, our Kareem Abdul-Jabbar show that uh, aired. That was fun. I really enjoyed that. I yeah, really enjoyed that. That aired on Nat Geo a little while ago. And so uh, we only got to answer a couple of them the first time around. Mm -hmm. So we took the rest of them. We figured, hey, why not uh, revisit this and dedicate a show and have your personal astrophysicist come back and answer these questions? Well, let's do that. Let's All do right. it. First so, one. Go ahead, Gary. Okay. So this is... Is from Ranjib Rudra 
on Facebook. Oh my he's god, that off. was great. He's Look at off. you. And, and you practice. He's, he's showing off. Fair. He's showing off. This is not cool because everyone knows. He rolled that. his R. He, he exactly. oh man. He pronounced Namaste. And everybody says knows that Ranji. I never ever prepare. And so, therefore, I look stupid, and now I got to start preparing because you just made me look dumb. No, you just got to learn to roll your R's. So, Namaste from New Delhi, which is obviously a very, very interesting place to be. Which planet in our solar system? Is that called Delhi now? I thought they. No, 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 no. India kind of got rebranded and they changed a whole load of names right, that were associated with But New Delhi still the Raj. New, New Delhi. Yeah, New Delhi is New Delhi. Uh, Bombay but became Bombay is Mumbai. 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 Uh, right. Calcutta became Kolkata. Kolkata. Madras. Kolkata. Kolkata. No. Kolkata. So then Madras. You say whatever you wish, sir. Madras became Chennai. Right. That's enough of the geography and history. But, 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 that happened in China as well. And when Peking became Beijing, but they didn't change Peking Duck to Beijing Duck. Yeah. Right. It's still Peking Duck. Absolutely. I'm pissed off at that. Why? I don't know. Peking Duck. Change it. Change it. Beijing Duck doesn't seem like I would like it. And it's still Bombay Gin. It's not Mumbai Gin. Trade name. Okay. There you go. So, right. right, Okay. Which planet in our solar system would be the best for having a game filled with super cool high-flying dunks? This would mean greater hang time in the air. Take it away, sir. Ooh, ooh. So we're talking about basketball here. Mm -hmm. We are all about the NBA and the superstars within it. The National Basketball Association. Correct. So so here's the thing. You don't want the gravity to be too low. Right. Right. Because you know what will happen? Because these guys can jump, right? For sure. And you want to talk about hang time? If the object has a low enough gravity, then you will jump and achieve escape velocity and just never come back. So you that's the limit. <laughs> By the way, that's, that's the game I want to watch. <laughs> Everybody okay. jumps. Everybody and jumps and, and just disappears. Nobody next, comes. Group, next group comes in. Next group comes in. Nobody comes back. Absolutely. It's going to cost an awful lot in uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's that limit. Okay. Then you don't want to limit the other limit where it, the gravity is so heavy, your muscles can't get you off the ground at all, right? So you, and we know what Earth is like. Yeah. And it, it, is that a not, not, not enough acrobatics for this person from New Delhi? No, no. no. Ran, Ranjib is possibly exploring the fact that what actually would happen. Okay. Would we, would we see? I think the moon is pretty good. Okay. Mars would be good too, but moon would be better. Okay, so here's what they are, just to remind you. Sure. Mars has about 40% of Earth gravity. Right. So if you're 200 pounds on Mars, on Earth, yeah. you are 40%. You'd be 80 pounds on Mars. Mm-hmm. So what that means is all your musculature, all the strength of those muscles that's accustomed to moving mm, gracefully 200 pounds, because you guys are all 200 pounds at least, right. okay? Mm-hmm. Um, because now, I mean, in my day, they were like 160, 70, 80 pounds. But it's before the... Everybody's know, working out. Everybody's working out now. Yep. Weight training. Right, weight, weight training. So right. 200 pounds is a good average weight if you want to think yep. about it. So okay. think about the strength you have to move your own body gracefully. Mm-hmm. And now at 200 pounds, now you weigh 80 pounds. Mm-hmm. So now you, you can jump much higher. Your hang time is much longer. And you're already acrobatic. Now you could do a triple... Um, pirouette oh, dunk because right. your hang time allows it. Right. So Earthmen so become supermen on Mars. Earthmen become supermen on Mars. That's wow. correct. Now that's forty percent your weight. Now you want you get used to that. Now the, this person writes in you Mars basketball players. I want I want to do see one more one, one up on that. Right. Yeah. Now you go to the moon. So now if you're two hundred pounds on Earth, 
you'd be 32 pounds on the moon. Whoa. So now you'd be even lighter. And right. a, a little known fact is that the, 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 the body weight plus equipment of the astronauts on the moon yeah. was like 350 pounds. Right. And there they were skipping, skipping like a, not like, even a thing. Yeah. <sighs> right. Like, yeah. like they were little, 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 um, little, after their little lambs. There you go. <laughs> so if they're 350 pounds on the moon, they're like, they're like 50 pounds here. Yeah, one sixth of that. But did, now see on the moon, when, the, when you would see the guys skipping along, as you said, with uh -huh. this 350 pounds worth of equipment on them, they looked a little more bouncy. So they went up and they came down slowly. It's because not only are they lighter, you fall slower. Right. Okay. So you go so, up slower. Right. Oh, so now but, we've got hang time. So there's where the hang time comes yeah. in. Okay. So so <laughs> you don't go up. You will come down as fast as you went up is what right. I'm saying. But if you go up fast, mm. you'll go that much higher. So here's the uh. thing. So so you could be saw depending on how high the basket is. If the Which, basket is still 10 feet up, what? you got to everybody be waiting, waiting around. Waiting for you to come down. <laughs> come down. Right. See, how long is a game going to last? <laughs> yeah, it'll be longer. Right, right. So so what you really would have to do would be raise, raise the, the basket. Raise the basket. And then right. you just have more high-flying stunts within a game. Correct. And you can imagine, remember those few moves that um, I first saw Michael Jordan do it? Surely it's been done since then. Where Michael Jordan was going with one hand, changed his mind. Right. Changed hands. Right. Uh, flip came... To the other side of the basket and put the ball in. Yep. Now you could do that. You could like change your mind four or five times. <laughs> so that's, that's all of true. a sudden you, you've introduced freestyling. Freestyle. Yeah, exactly. Free, there's enough time. Yeah. To do a freestyle shot. And maybe there'll be judges for how oh. how beautiful the shot was. Yeah, I like it. Right. Okay. Improv let's. -ball. Oh my gosh. Make it up new sports and that will go, never ever happen. Down, you come down on the left side. <laughs> I come down on Another. the right side. And I pass to you, you pass back to me, I throw it behind my back, someone shows up behind me, it goes down, back up, because what you've effectively done mm -hmm. is added a third dimension to the maneuverings of the ball. So right. what would we call, so we have the Harlem Globetrotters here, what are we gonna call ourselves on the moon? Ooh. We're closing out our 2017 time capsule with hockey, a.k.a. physics on ice. In this episode, physicist Dr. Alan Hache breaks down the science behind hockey's signature move, the slap shot. This is playing with science. Yes. yes, it's high time. We got our skates on, grabbed our pads and took to the ice and found out why hockey probably has more science in it than any other sport on Earth Period. Period. So let's begin by taking a look at hockey's signature move, the slap shot. Yeah. But one of the fastest, most powerful shots there is, if you like, call it the slam dunk of hockey. Yeah, and you know, we have a clip that we'd like to show right now, and then after that, we're going to bring in uh, our physicist, Alan Hache. And uh, the reason why we picked this clip, it's a former hockey player, retired now, yeah. but his name is Al Iafrady. And for many years, he was with the Washington Capitals, and this particular play... Uh, represents the slap shot at its best because it's a breakaway play yeah. where Iafrady receives the feed and he's all alone, almost like it's a penalty shot. And you see him just skating as hard as he can. And the thing that's funny is that whenever you see a breakaway play uh, in any sport, yeah. and you know as a, okay. as a former professional yeah. soccer player, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, the guy gets alone, and it's one-on-one -on -one with the goal. But then now there's a whole other thing going off because it's not on the ice anymore. It's between 
in his ears. Right. The whole mentality, I, if I've done this much, I've got to finish the play. Right. But, is, am I right, this is the fastest recorded slap shot in NHL history? Well, he held the record for 16 years for the fastest recorded slap shot in history. And he's also known for having one of the fastest and hardest slap shots in NHL history. Yeah. And on this particular play, he is just haul-assing down the ice. He's by himself, isolated, one-on-one with the goalie. Now, a lot of guys at that point, you would see them kind of finesse the shot. They might go left, right, and backhand. They might do a little wrist flip. But what he does, he rears back and pow, just slaps one. And I mean, (laughs) the goalie never knows what happens. This must be Al's dream. Yeah. And it's come to fruition. So let's let's watch this. Let's see how this pans out. Oh, baby! Comes to Cavallini. Lead pass for Iafredi. He's got a breakaway. And Iafredi scores! And the Caps lead 3-1. Not too many guys are going to take a slap shot on a breakaway, but we talked about Al's cannon that he has. <laughs> there you go. You even hear the announcers say, not too many guys are going to take a slap shot on a breakaway, but uh, you see the cannon that Iafredi has. <laughs> It is. It's. I mean, this thing's traveling at more than 100 miles an hour. Yes. I do that in my car. Well, you know I'm what? I'm in charge of a lethal weapon. I never even thought about it like that. It's like driving a tiny little black car 100 miles an hour <laughs> on ice into a net. All right. That's insane. <laughs> All right. So Chuck's driving down the ice in his little slick mobile, but there's some serious physics, some serious science behind what we just witnessed, and to help us break it down, is Professor of Physics Alan Haché from the University of Moncton in Canada. Not just a professor, but an author too. Author of Slapshot Science as well as the physics of hockey. Alan, welcome to the show. Now, you've seen the clip, you've heard how Chuck feels about it. Firstly, are you a hockey player yourself? And then we'll go from there about what you felt you saw and, going through that whole show. And before you answer, I'm gonna let me let me answer for you. I'm just wanna see if I'm right. So were you born in Canada? Yes. Okay. And you have lived there your whole life. Yep. Okay. Then I am going to say that you are a hockey player, otherwise they would have murdered you by now. <laughs> You guessed right. <laughs> Chuck, you I'm went a for low-hanging fruit, didn't you? <laughs> All right, Alan, so what is happening in terms of the physics and science through that whole process? Yeah, so it, it's a bit like uh, you have a, a rotating body. You have the, the upper body that is rotating, uh-huh. and it's transferring that energy uh, to the puck. So you have what they call kinetic energy of the upper body that is rotating, and you have a, a, an indirect collision, actually. That's a very important point because let's say you look at golf, uh, you have the, the club hitting the ball directly. Mm-hmm. And when, when you have that situation, you have the ball leaving at up to two twice the speed of the club. You never exceed that speed limit, no matter what the golf manufacturer, the balls, uh, golf balls manufacturers will tell you. Okay. The the, the physical uh, absolute limits of uh, the speed of the of the ball will be twice the velocity of the club head, and you would also get the same thing in hockey, uh, and that would be very hard to get uh, hundreds of miles, uh, hundred miles per hour. Instead, what happens is they hit the ice before and they load the stick with a lot more energy that would be normally transferred to the puck. So that way you can reach higher speed. 
Well, this concludes our 2017 Time Capsule episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in. Join us next time for a new season of Playing With Science. And remember, when you play with fire, you get burned. When you play with science, you get learned. Until then, I've been your host, Chuck Nice. We'll see you next time with Gary O'Reilly.